If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to at least listen to the podcast or YouTube. Um, we talked about dual covenant theology because of a verse in Esther that we will revisit just shortly tonight, where it said that many other nationalities became Jews. And I believe that this is a very important doctrine in the church today, especially with understanding the, the Hebraic roots of Scripture and of Jesus, that we have kind of separated that. I was even today reading in Ephesians 4, and it talked about not being Gentiles, that you should not be like the Gentiles. Now, granted, that... It's talking about the way the Gentiles live. Well, I think that still applies to us today because we live as Gentiles. And that is one reason why Jews do not listen to the gospel. Because why would they listen to a gospel from somebody who is telling them that their Messiah breaks the commandments of God? He doesn't care about pagan gods on the lips, you know, the Easter, the Christmas, all of those kind of things that go on. To them, that is absolute paganism. Doesn't matter what's in your heart. To them, that is pagan. And so as a result, they do not listen to the gospel because we have presented a Gentile Jesus to them. So go listen to that because I think it's important. We didn't quite finish everything with it last week and so there was kind of a good break spot so we're going to finish that and then we'll get back into the text of Esther more but I want to show you John 6:33. it says it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life so if his words are spirit then we need to look at the world around us And even his word, because he said, what I'm speaking to you is spirit, we need to look at it through spiritual eyes. Now, by no means am I saying that it's all symbolism and allegory. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a spiritual truth behind everything that he said. I always kind of look at it this way, that when you have a wedding ring, that is a literal ring. So there's a literal truth but it's symbolic of a greater meaning. Likewise, when we read Scripture, there's literal truth to it, but there's a greater symbolic spiritual picture to it. Okay? And, again, don't throw away the literal. People do that when it gets to creation. They say, well, it's just allegory, it's just spiritual. No, it was a literal creation. It literally happened. But there's a spiritual meaning to that creation. So we're going to address this a little bit. What is the spiritual word? And to do that, I want to look at some of Jesus' words that a lot of people look at and they see that it's legalism or that Jesus was getting rid of Torah. He was getting rid of the law. An eye for an eye kind of thing. Right? Let's look at that in Matthew 5, verse 38. Keep in mind these are Jesus' words. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So like I said, some say that Jesus here is revoking what the Old Testament said. You've heard it said in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I'm now telling you, throw that away. That's how it's interpreted most often. That is not the case at all. What they're saying in saying that is, in the Old Testament, The Torah, God's law, said you could take revenge. Somebody pokes your eye out, you can poke their eye out. It's just what it is. It's kind of almost a vengeful thing. And now Jesus is saying, no, if somebody hits you, you you turn the other cheek. 
There's no revenge now. Well, let's go to this Old Testament verse to see if our understanding of it is correct or not. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says this, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Does that sound like vengeful or revenge? No. Matter of fact, it, it's the opposite. You don't take vengeance. Proverbs 24, 29. Don't say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. Hmm. I will render to that man according to his work. Romans in the New Testament said, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if he's not saying an eye for an eye literally in that sense, what is he saying when he says you've heard it said an eye for an eye? Because this is not vengeful here. Proverbs 26 verse 27 goes on, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. You might say you're going to reap what you sow. If you're going to try and dig a pit for somebody else, and that's what's in your heart, you're going to probably get that same punishment. Obadiah 1.15, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Same kind of thing. Revelation in the New Testament, chapter 13, verse 10, He who leads into captivity should go into captivity. He who kills with his sword or the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So you can see there's a consistency between the old and the new on this. There, there's no contradiction here at all. It's basically saying you reap what you sow. In a secular New Age way, you'd say karma. Now, I don't believe in karma, and I'm not saying karma is true, but I'm saying there's aspects of karma that are true. Okay? You do reap what you sow, and that is very biblical in the old and in the new. And it's interesting that we do see a lot of those things happening in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go through them tonight, but um, where we see, I think in Galatians we'll touch on some of them, but you actually see God almost allowing years later what they did happens to them. Sometimes it takes years for it to happen, for that rock to roll back on them, but it does eventually. Always. And we may not even get to see it, but believe me, it's happening. Matthew 7, verse 12. He says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Okay. In essence, what we're seeing here is the golden rule. Right? Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. In Leviticus 24:19, If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. So this is the context that we're seeing in Matthew chapter 5. We have to take it in context with all of the scripture. He's not being vengeful because God says, don't take vengeance. He says, love your neighbor. What he's saying here, though, is that there is justice. God had set up a legal system, in a sense, spiritually. It, it's the punishment fitting the crime. Yeah. You know, no yep. cruel and unusual punishment. Yep. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, to say there's something wrong with that would be to say there's something wrong with our court systems when they're operating the way they should function. The way they should function. So, 
in essence, you can see that Yeshua is not going against Torah in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, but I tell you, you know, because I was wrong back then, or I'm now changing the system. He's not even elevating it. You've heard it said, but now I'm going to even make it higher. It's not even that. He is giving the spirit of the law in what it meant. Okay? So, keep that in mind, that Jesus cannot contradict the Old Testament. Cannot, or he could not be the Messiah. If he ever broke the commandments, he is not the Messiah. That is a fact. And so for the church to be saying, Jesus went around breaking the Torah, changing it, is for us to say that he couldn't be the Messiah. Now, we know, I know that change might be, wait a minute, when we went through Hebrews, if you weren't here for our study through Hebrews, we do see that there are changes that took place, but he didn't get rid of the old. He simply, in some cases, moved its location, like the law. He says that the law that was on stone has now, in the new covenant, been written on our hearts. That is exactly what Hebrews says, and that is exactly what Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31, when he said that, I'm going to make a new covenant. That's, by the way, New Testament. I'm going to make a new testament with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. It will not be like the covenant, like the testament that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they were not faithful to my covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Jacob at that time. I will write my law on their hearts and put it in their minds. He tells us what the New Testament is. Not getting rid of the law, but changing its location to our hearts so that we have a desire to obey him. And removing the condemnation of it so that when we fail, we're not going to hell because we fail. We've got Jesus who has forgiven us. So anyway, Esther 8.17 is kind of where we got off on this, where it said many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. If you're new to our Esther study, we have been going through this whole book showing you that it is very prophetic. And, I mean, you cannot go hardly two verses without seeing a prophetic picture. It is a prophetic book. You'll have to go listen to it. I'm not going to go and do a review for you. But go listen to it. But we're going to continue to see that prophetic picture here. Ruth, we talked about that, I think, last week. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Esther is not the only story that's showing that you have a Gentile who isn't saying, Okay, I'll come and join you, but I want you to take on my culture. She's saying, I'll come and join you. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. I become you. That's what Gentiles were supposed to do. That's what the Gentile church did at the beginning in Acts chapter 10, 15, 21. That's what it looked like. It wasn't until later when the anti-Semitic attitudes came up and we began to build that wall of hostility back up again that all of a sudden the Gentiles began to boast over those branches, as Romans talks about, and said, no, he's our God, not yours. You're the ones that killed him. Okay, he's our God now. He's a God of the Gentiles, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though you can't show me that in Scripture. Okay, he became, we took on them. And today... This is what I see modern Christianity saying. Your people, you Jews, are not my people, but I'll take your God. We talked about Zechariah 8.23 last week, so I won't go through it much, but just to remind you that in the last days, ten men will take, the, take hold, firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. So, anyway... Uh, 
Boaz is a picture of Christ. Ruth is a picture of the Gentiles when you go read that story. So in Ruth, let's just look at that a little bit. Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field. Remember, Boaz being a picture of Christ tells her to listen to him. And she's going to. Don't go glean in another man's field. What, what's that mean? I'm going to paraphrase. Don't go making another church. Don't go seeking other truth. This You have found your home. Don't go to another man's field. Okay? Nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Remember, Jesus is talking about the harvest, and the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God is Lord of the harvest. He has a field. And he's saying, don't go to another man's field. You stay in my field. All right? Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, basically humbling herself, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? Like David, who am I, O Lord, that you should look upon me? He said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Why should God care about us Gentiles? In essence, Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law. What does he look at? He looks at her fruit, her actions. Again, I'm not saying fruit saves you. I'm saying fruit is evidence of your salvation. If you don't have that fruit, folks, you're fooling yourself. You have deceived yourself. You are You've lied to yourself. That's the bottom line. She, he is looking at your fruit. Remember what we read last week about Gentiles? If the Gentiles do keep the commandments, will they not be considered as if they were circumcised? That's coming from Romans. In other words, if the Gentiles obey the commandments of God, they are considered Jews. The circumcised. Obedience cannot be separated from the gospel. Modern Christianity has tried to separate obedience from the gospel and said, if you call on the name of Jesus, you're saved. Okay, Jesus, I want you, now you're a saved person. Uh Uh-uh. It's not like that. There's a deeper truth to that. Does that mean if anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved? Yes, I believe that's true, but you can't simplify that by isolating it all by itself. Obedience matters. It goes on, verse 11, Boaz answered and said, it has been reported to me, repeating this, all that you have done for your mother-in-law and have come to a people whom you did not know before. She joined them. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. That's what I was saying tonight. We are under the shadow of his wings. Now remember what we talked about before with the wings here as well. Kanaf, seat seat. We're not talking about wings of an eagle. We were talking about the wings of the garment. And those wings, those seat seats, the Bible tells me, are a picture of the commandments of God. In other words, you could say that you have come under the commandments of God for refuge. You've come under the people of Israel. Remember Romans again, What advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. For they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs the divine glory. Theirs the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the covenants. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. So, 
this is what it's talking about. Not just this nice little fluffy poem of, yes, I'm under the shadow of his wings. We're under the shadow of the protection of his commandments, of his love, of all of it. And to do so isn't just saying, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Ruth could have said, yeah, I'll come with you. But she, does, she, she says, I'll go, and then she goes. She's not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of it. So, you know, up there earlier here in verse 10, 9, you know, drink from the living water, in essence, is what's happening here. Um, kind of going back to what we said last week then. When people ask you, you know, are you, what, are you, what are you, Jewish? What's your response? Yes. Now that might take some clarification. But the answer is yes. That's exactly what Ruth would have said. What, are you Jewish? Yes. Their people are my people. Their God is my God. How you relay this truth to others is up to you in the situation and the circumstances. I can't tell you. All I can tell you is what the truth of the matter is. All right, Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, remember background here, Peter is separating himself from the Gentiles, and he would not eat with them after uh, James had come to them. And so uh, Peter is about to get rebuked here. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Amen. By the works of the law, by keeping those commandments, you will never be justified because you have to keep them 100% perfectly in order to get into heaven. And there isn't a man alive that's ever done it except for Jesus Christ, who is full man and full God. But that doesn't mean that it's still not important. And it's not a protection that you come under. This verse is taken out of context so much because we're not seeing, first of all, the context of Galatians and the spirit of what's being said here. So many times people look at this and say, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, that they're telling Peter, listen, we now can live as Gentiles. We're not under the law. The law is gone because we're not justified by the law. So God got rid of it. We're now free in Christ. That's the message that we hear so often from this verse. We are going to go through Galatians, and we'll go through this in greater detail. This has everything to do. The whole book of Galatians is dealing with the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Do you get circumcised or do you not? This is the whole context of this book. We cannot go through it now, but keep that in mind for now. Um, and that's why he's saying, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel because there was a lot of pressure coming from the circumcision group trying to say that if you were going to be a Christian even the Messianic Jews by the way saying that if you were really going to follow Yeshua you still had to be circumcised to be saved and Paul is saying no you do not have to be circumcised to be saved we are talking about the physical circumcision here Later in Romans, we see him talking about a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. Here, we're talking about the flesh, 
circumcision. In the context of the, the whole book shows you that. But Peter, first of all, again, since supposedly the Catholics say he was the first pope, and popes are sinless, apparently either he couldn't be the first pope, or their doctrine of them being sinless is wrong, because he's being rebuked here under about spiritual matters, because the, the Catholic Church isn't going to say that they never do a sin, but when it comes to theology and, and that type of thing, the spiritual world, they are faultless, inerrant. Well, Peter was not. All right? So anyway, um, the heart of the issue really is circumcision, as I said, and a desire to keep the law, not an ability to keep the law. There is a difference between those two. A heart to keep it versus an ability to do it. You can't. You are not capable. But you better have a heart for it. Leviticus 26.11, God says to the Jews, now this is going to be important, that he's speaking to specifically only the Jews. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God would walk among them, and they were to be his, and he was to be theirs. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, and now we see Paul talking to the Gentiles, not the Jews here. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In Leviticus, it's explicitly for the Jews, and now here, it's being applied to the Gentiles. Why? Because as we see that dividing wall of hostility, Jesus came to tear down, and he wanted to make the two one. And so now... The rules, the covenant that applied to the Jews are applying to the Gentiles. So this idea of dual covenant theology that the Jews have one set of rules and the Gentiles have another is not holding water. We have the same rules, the same covenant, the same God. Not different rules, a different covenant or a different God. That wall has been torn down. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 continues, and it quotes Isaiah. Isaiah was specifically for the Jews again. But here, in the context of 2 Corinthians, is specifically for the Gentile. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't or do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We're to be separate. Not separate from the Jews. We're to be united with them, according to Galatians, Ephesians, everywhere. You're supposed to be united with them. You're supposed to be separate from the worldly Gentiles. Exodus 19, speaking to the Jew, God said, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my special treasure to me above all people. Above, every, above the Gentiles, above everybody, right? For all the earth is mine. Deuteronomy 26, 18, The Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. All right. The Jews are God's special people. I would say, with replacement theology, which were, is related, they ultimately say that the church has now replaced the Jew. Again, I believe that's a heresy. I, I, I can blow it out of the water scripturally. 
Remember, I don't remember where this is, Jeremiah, Isaiah, but he says this. If my covenant with David, and my covenant with the house of Israel can be broken, he says, well, first, got to back up a little bit more. He says, if, if the, my covenant with day and night can be broken, so that day no longer comes or night no longer comes at its appointed time, then my covenant with the house of David and with the house of Israel can be broken. If you can stop day and night from coming, then maybe God's covenant with Israel can be broken. But if you can't, and if that has never happened, then let me tell you something. His covenant saying that you are my treasured people has not changed. Never has it changed. Um, so this is for Jews, specifically. Well, what's the New Testament tell us? Now that Jesus has broken down that wall of hostility and allowed you to be grafted into that Jewish covenant, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is New Testament telling you you better be good. Right? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now the Gentiles are called his special people? Yeah. Because Yeshua is exactly what breaks down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. We are his treasured possession. We are the ones, as Gentiles, that should be zealous for good works. Zealous to keep his commands. Zealous to go under the wings of his protection. Zealous to celebrate the festivals, to give him glory, honor, and praise. Zealous to learn more of who he is, so that the more we know him, the more we will love him. That's what Gentiles are supposed to be doing. Rather than boasting and saying, I'm free in Christ, I can do whatever I want. Um, that finished up what we needed to talk about last week. Okay? So this is shorter here now, so don't worry, I'm not going to take you to 8.30 or anything, but uh, kind of changing themes a little now. Back into Esther, chapter 9. <laughs> chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. Don't go there. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Here we see that the same day that was decreed for death by the, the laws of the Medes and the Persians for the Jews became a day of salvation for them. Kind of interesting how that's exactly what the cross was. The day of his death was the day of salvation for us. And in many ways, uh, the day we die is the day we're free. Okay, we see that pictured here, I think. The golden rule that we had talked about before is occurring here with Haman. Haman had built gallows to kill the enemy, and he ends up being killed with the gallows. So, just like what we were talking about before. Um, the Gentiles, as we said, decided to, to live like Jews because of the edict and God's deliverance. Now, maybe some of them, it was just out of fear. Maybe some of them, it was out of desire, seeing God's protection, seeing how God had delivered them, hearing the reputation of God throughout all these years and all the deliverances. I don't know. All I know is that it says many became Jews. Um, but... We see that the 13th day of the 12th month was the day that the Jews were to be killed. 
And as I said, that becomes a day of celebration and salvation, and that's why we celebrate Purim when we did that here a while back, to remember God's deliverance, to remember his salvation, moving from death to life. Um, Obadiah 1.15 says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So just another verse talking about, you know, that golden rule in a sense. Verse 2, The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. So now you've got some nationalities that became Jews. Now all these other nationalities, even if they didn't become Jews, are afraid of the Jews. Deuteronomy 2.25 said this, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Do you remember when Rahab uh, helped the spies when they were going into the promised land, to sp uh, the Israelite spies went in and she helped them. And Rahab said, you know, told them what's going on. We've heard of these reports. Those spies go back and say, they're melting with fear over us. Why? Because they heard God, what God had done for them. Not because of the Israelites themselves, but because of the God of Israel. This is what we were talking about months ago with Jamie Walden. We have this idea today with spiritual warfare. Oh, the devil, the devil, oh, the devil's over there. I better not, oh. Now, don't get me wrong. The devil is a worthy opponent for you. I mean, he'd cream you. But he who is in you is greater than he that is in this world, the devil. And we ought to be having that attitude of, Hey, devil, don't you dare enter this house. This is my home, and it is under the blood of Jesus. You get out of here now. We have authority, and we don't need to cower because we have the living God with us. And so that's what's going on here because those who even will hear the report of you shall tremble. When the devil knows you're going someplace, he should be fearful because he knows you stand on truth. But if you're just going to cower and you're not under the wings of the shadow of his wings, yeah, you might want to be afraid. But when you're standing under the wings of God, then you have every right to stand in confidence. So when the Jews are entering into the promised land, if you've ever read my book on Exodus, you'll see that the book of Exodus is just a pattern as well. And going into the promised land is a picture of us going into heaven, our promised land. The whole idea of Jericho, you know, marching around seven times, blowing the seven trumpets. Revelation, there are seven trumpets that blow before you, you know, actually get to enter the, I mean, it's one thing after another. But the point being is, it is a picture of end times. When they were going into the promised land, the people were melting in fear. Let me tell you something. When the Lord comes back, they are going to be fearful of those who stand on Christ. I don't understand eschatology very well. The best I can make of what's going on is this, that God takes us to Jerusalem. And then we see this big first Armageddon battle that takes place, and that horse goes out. Jesus leads, and all of his saints go behind him, and they are going to be petrified, like words cannot describe. We read in Revelation, when the Lord's coming back, they're crawling into caves, begging the rocks to bury them just to hide from the face of him who sits on the throne. And when he comes back, the saints are coming back with him. That is the picture we're seeing here in Esther. The all the nationalities, the world is terrified 
because of God's people. Because God is with them. Not because of the people themselves, but because God is with them. That's the picture you're seeing here. Verse 3. All the nobles of the province, the satraps, the governors, the kings, administrators, helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Now that's interesting, isn't it? This whole time we've been saying Mordecai is a picture of Jesus. Fear of Mordecai had seized them. Yes, I know he was put in power. Yes, I know that he's able to give these edicts. But that's exactly what happens at the end times. Jesus takes all authority. Jesus' word goes out to the world to bring salvation or destruction. And it is the fear of Jesus that will seize everybody. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces. And he became more and more powerful. Acts 24, 24, And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. Is this modern-day evangelism? Where we go and the people who hear us walk away, I, I'm scared. Or is it, oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> Come to my church. Uh, we've got coffee and cookies and, you know, a, a welcoming team and the music is great. And, you know, you don't really have to change to come. Just, just come on in. Okay, we, we give this nice, soft Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. But what I'm saying is, Paul was not holding back any punches here because the governor was afraid and he couldn't handle the truth. Well, then it was later on it talks that um, this went on for two years. Yeah, for two years, that's right. Just a few days. Yep. The gospel today has been watered down to just a Jesus loves you. It's more than that. Without obedience, the gospel and obedience, they, they, they're like this. You cannot separate them. And I think that that's what has happened. We, we you know, should say all your sins are forgiven. Yes. But if you don't repent, you're still going to hell. And that's what he was saying. He reasoned with him not just about righteousness, but about self-control and judgment judgment that was going to come so anyway it's the fear of god that the message of jesus christ okay the faith in christ that's what's missing but that's what mordecai had mordecai um i don't remember if we've talked about this already or if it's coming up in my prep but when Mordecai's, I think we already talked about, when Mordecai sent the message out, it was one offering peace. You can have peace. But if you stand up against the Jews, you will be destroyed. Whereas Haman's was, there will be no peace. It doesn't matter if you're a good guy or a bad guy, you're going to die. That's kind of the message of Satan, pretty much. But Haman's, or not Haman, uh, Mordecai's edict offered peace this is the same thing you can have peace but it isn't free there, there's a requirement to have that peace second corinthians 5 10 says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad <coughs> knowing therefore the terror of the lord we persuade men now that's a guy to go out and evangelize with. Colossians 1.28 Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor. Paul understood the terror of the Lord. He understood that we needed to warn people. But today it's like, oh, you know, don't tell me how bad I am. I want to know how good I am. 
You know, we, we don't, if I speak against homosexuality, then I'm going to be in trouble and this guy's not going to come to church or whatever. No, listen, I'm going to warn you about homosexuality. I'm going to warn you about sleeping with your girlfriend, your boyfriend. I'm going to warn you about living with, with somebody before you're married. I'm going to warn you about watching that garbage on TV. I'm going to warn you about the words coming out of your mouth, the thoughts that you have, those dirty jokes. I'm going to warn you because you better have the terror of the Lord God in your heart. That's part of the gospel. We are to teach the fear of God. It's kind of just like in the Old Testament about prophecies, right? You know, uh, how do they say these people... Yeah, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But they also say, prophesy to us good things. I, I think Jeremiah again. But anyway, verse 4 of more, uh, Esther 9. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Um, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. In Mark one twenty seven. Then they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? What new edict, maybe, you might say? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Remember John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he will increase. And so here... In Mark, we're seeing the effects of the gospel going out. Jesus' fame spreads. Just like Mordecai's fame spread. Verse 5, Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Revelation 2.25, connecting these two together, Hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. The Jews are given absolute, complete, total victory under the name of Mordecai. That is where we get our victory. Complete, utter, absolute authority and victory in Jesus Christ. That's what we're reading here. We will have power over all the nations. Verse 6. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parashandatha, Dalphon, Ashbatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, uh, Parmashta, Arisha, and all these other names I'm making up how to pronounce. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. First of all, not, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Remember when they went into the promised land in Jericho? They, did not, they weren't supposed to take a thing. Let me tell you something. One of the reasons, I believe, is because of it's, it's defiled, it's dirty, it's unclean. But when the Lord comes back, are you going to take your hands on any of the plunder of the enemy? No. A, you're not going to care about it. But B, it's going to be destroyed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. All of this is going to be destroyed, and your hands will not take it. So that same picture is seen here. Now this word citadel, I have that highlighted because it literally is the word palace. So, um, it says that, uh, verse 11, on that day the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the palace, was brought to the king. Satan's kingdom is going to be overturned. And it is going to be brought in or taken over, the authority, full authority, will be given to God. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 11 at the seventh trumpet. It says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And that's what we're going to see in the end. Remember, 
that this should have never happened had Saul done what he was supposed to. When he became king, he was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. So he was supposed to wipe them out, but they were not supposed to take any of the plunder. So you remember Samuel comes, and we see he's coming. He says, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And Saul trying to justify himself. Oh, you know, well, we kept the best, you know, to sacrifice to the Lord. And in essence, Samuel says, because you have done this wicked thing, you were supposed to wipe them out completely, and you have kept the plunder for yourself, God is going to tear this kingdom out of your hand. And so, here, Haman, who is now killed, is a descendant of the Amalekites. And so, they did not lay their hands on the plunder, perhaps because of the initial command that God gave them years earlier. And so now what we're seeing is that they are saying God has finally fulfilled this promise. We will keep that command and not lay hands on the plunder. I do think there is a spiritual picture for the future as well, but no question I think that there is an aspect of that too. So very good point to bring up. And now... It is fulfilled because from this point on, the genealogy of Haman, because what we're seeing is his sons are all wiped out. So the genealogy of Haman is gone. What's going to happen at the end of the world? The Satan and all of his are wiped out. He is a picture of Satan. And so Satan and all who follow or belong to him will be destroyed. Which is a good picture of all the demonic world that's out there. With that, we will close tonight.